As a listener of this show, it's safe to say you like staying informed through podcasts. Now, with UStudio, your company can do the same. UStudio helps businesses host, manage, and distribute secure, private podcasts. Share confidential training with remote employees, product updates with customers and sales reps, weekly messages from the CEO, and more. Join companies like Salesforce, Nike, and Dell, who all trust UStudio to power their private podcasts. Request a free personalized demo today at the letter ustudio.com and be sure to mention you heard it on Equity. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. I am Alex Wilhelm and joining me today is Danny Crichton, a longtime member of the Equity family. Danny, how the hell are you? I'm doing all right, Alex. How are you? Uh, you know, I, I'm good, but I wanted to pause, if it's okay with you, and, and talk a little bit about yourself. I know that if I asked you to tell everyone about yourself, you would just give us like a joke. So I did some research on you. Sorry about that. And um, I'm going to run through your personal bio in like 15 seconds so everyone knows where you're coming from and kind of what you're bringing to the, uh, the microphone, as it were. So first, you had a short stint at Google after your time at Stanford. You were whatever the hell a Fulbright visiting researcher is in South Korea. You were at General Catalyst, the VC firm, for a bit. You did the baller move of going to Harvard and then dropping the hell out, which I think is pretty good. Uh, you did stuff at TC for a while, then you abandoned us and went to go work for Charles River Ventures, or CRV. Built some stuff on your own, came back to TC, helped launch Extra Crunch, and now you're the managing editor of TC which is cool, but I have to ask, what does a managing editor do? A managing editor does not write. How'd you get that job? I, I, I uh, acquired it and was rewarded <laughs> by not well, being able to do the job that I want to do. No, that's not true. Well, anyways, we're glad that you're back. You've been on the show, what, a half dozen times, 10 times, something yeah, like something that? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, good. Well, you'll be around uh, every week for a good chunk of time, which has us all, all at Twitter and all very, very excited. Um, and just so everyone knows, we're getting 2020 in shape. Uh, we all know we just lost uh, Kate Clark, who was the co-host for a long time. We miss her already. Uh, bon voyage, Kate. But we're getting the guest list in, in place. We have the new Equity Monday short forms coming out. Um, we're tinkering with my audio and acoustic setup. So lots of good stuff coming up. Um, but I think that's enough throat clearing. Shall we, uh, shall we dig in? Let's go. All right. Uh, starting off today with some quick hits from the early stage market. Uh, I'm going to go first. I wrote about a cool startup that just raised a Series A. Danny, have you heard of Lily AI? I read your story this morning, Alex. Okay, let me try again. Before you read my story this morning, had you heard of Lily I AI? I have not, Alex. <laughs> your enthusiasm That was the best segue we've ever done on this show. Um, I'll give it like bottom, bottom decile. Anyways, uh, Lily AI, I also hadn't heard of them, which is why I asked that. But uh, their new investor is someone that I do know, uh, Maha Ibrahim. She's fantastic. She's over at Canaan. Um, she came on actually way back in time, my old TC show bullish back in the day. Anyways, um, it's a really cool company. It's founded by a couple of women, one formerly of box, one formerly of UNICEF. Uh, and they've put together a company that does something that I didn't know people needed. And I'll try to explain it to you. So, um, if you had to click a deep learning algorithm and have it look at like clothing items, like pictures of them, you can pull out attributes pretty easily. One, two, three. They pull out a bunch and then they kind of correlate that with information on individual people and then help brands and e-commerce stores better recommend stuff for you. And it's pretty cool. And uh, the reason why 
it's worth talking about, I think, is that the technology has already shown pretty strong improvements to like the, the sales, um, what do you call it, like sales results of a lot of these stores. And so they're kind of coming into the Series A. It feels a bit more mature than a lot of Series A companies that we see. Um, and I, I'm stoked about it. But I don't know, Danny, how close do you track the uh, kind of e-commerce world? As someone who has worn the same Oxford button-down shirt since around sixth grade, I would tell you that fashion tech is probably not one of my strongest suits. You know, I don't think it's fashion tech, though. You're the second person to say that today. I think this is e-commerce tech applied to the world of attire. And I think if you call it fashion tech, people are going to presume it's kind of like niche and not, not, not very important. But like e-commerce, which I think this should have kind of applied to more broadly in time, is, is like, you know, trillions of dollars. So... It's big, you know. Anyways, 12.5 million Series A. It only raised a couple million before. Kanan now on board. NEA is also in the round. And that's Lily AI. I think it's a cool story, and I'm excited to see what's up for them next. But you have some short forms as well, so what's up? Yeah, a couple of good pieces of news before we get to the bad parts of the equity podcast today. Um, one great exit that I think uh, kind of got bulldozed this week, uh, Armist Security, uh, an AI, they're all AI-driven security companies, but an AI-driven security company uh, was acquired by Insight Partners for $1.1 billion uh, this Monday. And uh, it's a sort of a classic kind of SaaS enterprise buyout play. We've seen a lot of this um, from a couple of different firms, but it's a reminder that in this space, there are still a lot of exits in the unicorn space. Um, and it, it seems to be doing really well. One interesting company out of um, Boston, uh, Waltham, Boston in particular, um, Vecna Robotics um, is a, a creator of self-driving forklifts. Um, yeah. If this doesn't scare the, the crap out of you, um, I don't know what else will. But it, it, in a lot of warehouses, of course, you have to, uh, forklifts, you have a lot of people walking around. And sort of the, the, the holy grail of all warehouse startups is, is to be able to have humans and machines working collaboratively in the same place, lowering the costs of, of operating a warehouse, being able to deliver goods, pa uh, pick and pack, uh, all that. Vecna is at the core of that, and they raised $50 million from a, a firm I haven't heard of called uh, Blackhorn Ventures. So that's a really interesting one. Um, they're formerly funded by Highland Capital, Fontanalis, and Drive Capital. Um, and then third in the good news department. Actually, yeah. can we pause and just talk about that for one second? Have you ever driven a forklift? I have not. It's one of the things that I haven't driven, but I really want to. I was hoping you had because I've done some farm work and some stuff in warehouses, but I've never gone to drive a forklift because the operators are so specialized in what they do. And often they're very impressive. Like good forklift drivers are like artists and they can do really impressive things with pallets and moving around. So if there's a way to, to, to automate that, on one hand, I'm kind of bummed because the people that drive forklifts kick ass at it and they're really cool to watch. But also like it, it implies a really high level of precision. It isn't just like ah, 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 and moving around really jerkily. This is often stuff that needs to be relatively fluid. And that's why it's cool to me. It's not just another robot arm. This is a thing that's gonna be moving heavy objects in crowded spaces, needs to be very precise, needs to never make mistakes. I mean, it, it's, it's actually a relatively hard problem. And that's why it's cool. Anyways, keep going. Well, I was gonna say, you know, we, we at our mobility event earlier last year at, at TechCrunch, we, we had the, the head of Playground Global which is a, a robotics-focused VC firm. And um, one of the major theses that they have is, is, is how to get all self-driving automobiles, forklifts, let's add everything that might be mobile, um, to interact with each other, right? And so I think on, on the floor of a warehouse is a great example of this. Humans are walking around, forklifts are going left and right, no one needs to die. And that's the biggest no challenge there. So it's, it's all interactivity. And then also there's a ton of startups in the location, uh, particularly internal location space. Um, so in the warehouse, where exactly are these forklifts down to the centimeter, right? What direction mm -hmm. are they facing? You can't use GPS in most of those contexts. So there's a bunch of beacons and homing companies focus, focusing in on that. 
Uh, exactly. But uh, before we jump into the big stories, I cut you off. Let's talk about High Radius really quickly. Yeah. So one more, um, a great example of a company um, completely outside of the major kind of ecosystem zones. But this is a Houston-based company called High Radius, which does AI-powered fintech software. Um, so clearly AI, another, uh, everything's an AI company these days, but has raised a $125 million Series B growth round um, from Iconic and is, is sort of a classic example of, it maybe it's a little bit surprising coming out of Houston, but it's a good example of where enterprise and SaaS is now a global phenomenon. Everyone outside of Silicon Valley, New York, you don't need to have this expertise in two or three cities. In places like we've seen one, uh, the first kind of uh, billion dollar company out of Cincinnati, we've seen this out of Houston, um, and it's great to see that startups are percolating in more and more places all across the nation or all across the world. Yeah, and this is a story that was on uh, Crunchbase News, uh, My Old Home, if you will. And I think it was written by Marianne Azevedo, who's kept a really close eye on kind of the Austin, Houston, Dallas trio of cities. And what, what I've learned by watching her work is that there's so much more going on than what I thought there was when I was living in San Francisco. And I I, I, I said to point out my own myopia. I Because there was so much going on within a 10-block radius, you never have to kind of go looking for anything to have, you know, just to get a full fill. Um, but this is the kind of story that she's really bringing to the fore, and I, you know, I want to give her points for it. Um Okay, now we're going to talk about SoftBank, and it's been a week. It's been for, a, it's been a real week. Yeah, um, we're trying to figure out where I want to begin. Why don't we talk a Why little? Why don't we talk about, about food? So let's talk about pizza. I mean, everyone's okay. favorite food. Uh, apparently, not everyone's favorite food because somehow delivering food and delivering everyone's favorite food is not a profitable business. It wasn't a business at all, question here. And we're talking about <laughs> Zoom, which is Z-U-M-E. Not Zoom, the Microsoft uh, device. Not Zoom, the video conferencing software we're currently using, but Zoom, the robotic pizza delivery company. Now, Danny, when you heard that SoftBank's Vision Fund had put several hundred million dollars into Zoom originally, what was your first gut reaction? Well, the, the, in some ways, it's a smart play, right? So, so pizza is by far the largest delivery market in the United States. There's almost nothing else that comes close to it. Um, so in some ways, you're like, if you're going to do food delivery, you might as well just do pizza, because pizza is something like, I think it's even a majority of the market of all food delivered to all homes in the United States. Um, so it makes sense. And then robotics, the idea was sort of, um, there's a bunch of these sort of take-and-bake pizza joints all around the country. Um, the idea with Zoom was like, hey, you can flash heat this right in front of the home. It's piping hot. You don't have to use preservatives. You don't have to use all that 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 uh, dusting that you see in the pizza boxes in order to lower the moisturizing. Um, the problem is, is somehow that doesn't all work out because the boxes are really expensive. The pizza is really expensive. The cars are expensive. Licensing is expensive. You can't just drop pizzas wherever. Um, and the timing doesn't work, right? So th that, that robotic... Uh, van essentially that's dropping in front of your house can't drop a, a pizza anywhere else and so there's no scale kind of advantage to those those cars and so what we've seen over the last uh, week is that uh, zoom pizza has is shed 80 percent of its workforce um and it, it looks like it's going all the way down uh, according to some of the stories that we've seen um they're going to focus on sustainable pizza boxes sustainable which, which, packaging yeah sustainable and, packaging um which from robotic automated pizza delivery cars like this is this is like a William Gibson like sequel. Like you, you're going from like a beautiful like sci-fi world to like, you know, it's like San Francisco 2020. People drink oat milk and they they get sustainable pizza boxes. So that that's where we are. Uh, I I can't dispute any of that. I'll just say that I had a different reaction when I heard this news. My first thought was, well, there goes 375 million dollars because. It, it, it struck me as one of those ideas that you could talk yourself into, but wasn't inherently a good idea by itself. Um, to be clear, I want to make a point that I wrote this week, but I think it matters. When we talk about layoffs, we are not 
happy. Like these are not stories that we're excited to bring up. We often cover big rounds that involve hiring, but when we talk about layoffs, they matter for context setting, but we're not cheering. We're not gloating. We're not kicking dirt on people. No one should get laid off. It's, it's hard on families. People lose insurance. You know, it, it's bad in general. So don't take any of what follows as, 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 uh, as in, in poor taste. It's not, um, we, we don't like it. But that said, uh, let's talk about some more layoffs because there's been a number of layoffs at kind of vision fund companies in the last 12 months. And I had lost track of it kind of in the news cycle. And so some, some notes about some stuff. There were like several rounds of layoffs at WAG last year. There was layoffs at Uber before that IPO. Um, you know, WeWork fell apart and then that company went through, you know, an enormous period of, of laying people off. There have been layoffs at FAIR. Uh, there were layoffs at Katerra, though it turns out they kind of opened a different factory. So it's not clear that was really kind of the same sort of layoffs. Um, the one connect IPO didn't go as well as people had hoped. Uh, SoftBank gave up on WAG. Uh, Brandless's revenue fell by half. Uh, Dara Koshrachali had Uber is getting some negative stuff written about him. And uh, we're not really sure if um, the Vision Fund 2 is coming. So the, the summary of this is it's not just Zoom pizza. There's there's some turbulence over at, uh, at the Vision Fund and a lot of success. So it's, it's kind of, you know, which which is kind of leading the news cycle points out the negative, Danny. But I, I'm curious from your prior VC experience, if you think their portfolio in aggregate is uh, is struggling or we're just seeing kind of these negative highlights. I think there's always a J curve. I, I I wrote a piece a couple months ago about this, and I still believe this, which is in all venture firms, there's a J curve, which is um, your your worst bets lose first. And so all venture fund funds in the early years always look like they're in deficit. It's always terrible. Every, everything everything that's going to fail fails early. Everything that's good is actually going to be there a long, long period of time, right? So so the, the bad stuff is coming through. The, the, the mistake here was assuming that a, a very late stage fund like Vision Fund um, was not going to have a J curve. Right, they're all two years from IPO, and so everything's just going to grow and go public in you know two years, three years, or whatever. And I think what we're seeing is there's still really a J curve. I mean, there, a bunch of these are, are, are failures. Some of them are self-induced. Um, clearly, um, they were overgrowth. They spent too much money on bad marketing, maybe too many hires too quickly. Um, in some cases, it might be a thesis like Zoom Pizza. Uh, again, I, I don't, you know I'm not an expert on the pizza space, but it seems like a tough market. <laughs> Ultimately, in the end, even if at a high level, it kind of made sense. Um, Lime is a great example of this, right? I don't know if scooters are going to do well or not, but like clearly, it was not right, ready for prime time. And so, to my mind, there is a J curve. Um, the question is: is are the remaining portfolio companies in the Vision Fund still relevant? Um, they do have a lot of good stuff uh, in mm -hmm. the portfolio. Some of the stuff is doing super well. Um, so it's going to be hard to know. The problem is uh, the whole model sort of predicated on the Vision Fund 2. And you, you sort of burnt $100 billion somehow in 24 months. And well, unfortunately, not entirely. It's not some entirely. There's still, there's still some left over, right? But the, the, you, you, you sort of went through the investable capital and now you follow on reserves. And so the challenge is, is like, Everyone's going to wait. All your LPs, they're going to look at the results and go, wow, this is, it's a bloodbath. Let's, let's just wait around the corner. So I, I think it's not going to be hard times. I mean, I wish I was running a $100 billion venture fund and I could just got to write $5 billion a month. Um, that's not a bad gig. I'll take it. But, uh, you know, the, 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 the thing that actually worries me the most about the Vision Fund was actually the story, I believe it was from Dan Premack at Axios, um, which was about how the Vision Fund apparently in the last couple of weeks or months has been reneging term sheets, which means that they extended a term sheet to a startup, signed, had an exclusivity to close a round, and then didn't close in the end, maybe because of the WeWork uh, debacle or Uber debacle or any of the number of other debacles. Yeah. So, so for people who haven't raised a venture round and might be looking into this uh, in, as a future activity, the the, the pre-founder founders that are on the on the show right now listening, how bad is this, and how rare is it to quote break a term sheet? 
It's it's uh, it's rare. It's not impossibly uncommon. Uh, it's rare in the sense that maybe two out of 50 or 60 rounds will ever have something like this happen. So one out of 30, I'll, I'll do my fractions properly on this show. Um, <laughs> you know, and it usually happens because of fraud, um, frankly. Like in many cases, um, maybe you're investing at the late stage, you're waiting for a, a quarter's financials to close, and they're half of what you expect. And you thought it was going to be 100 million in revenue, and it's 60. And it whiffs. Right. And that happens. And you're, you're like, no, you made a promise. It was going to be 100 million. Now it's 60. That's not the same company. And, and yeah. at that point, you're sort of in a, in a really bad spot. Um, it's unusual because as soon as you start to do this and it starts to become widely known that you do this, you know, it's sort of like when your handshake is no longer valuable. Right. You, you do a handshake deal. Uh, but if the handshake's not worth anything, then how do you actually get exclusivity and actually close around? And so I think, you know, maybe they, they benefited from it. Maybe they're having challenges on cash flow. I mean, there might be all kinds of other reasons why it's happening. But if it really becomes widely known that they're going to break their own term sheets, why would you ever take it in the first place? Um, and that's yeah. really going to harm if there is a vision fund, too. Um, that kind of reputation is really, really damaging. Yeah. And then one thing that, that I saw, and I don't know how, how important this is, but you might have a better view on this, given that you've worked for two different VC firms, is that there were tweets about this. People were saying, shame on SoftBank. How dare they? Don't trust them. And it felt like a lot of grumblings that had been beneath the surface kind of broke out as if people were no longer afraid of, of pissing off SoftBank. And as they had been, for as you and I both know, for a long time, because they didn't want to say the wrong thing and then have one of the portfolio companies, you know, be like raised against by by the Vision Fund. Um, as, the, as the fear climate changed, given that the Vision Fund 2 is still like, you know, somewhere lurking and not quite here yet. I wouldn't even call it fear. It's a, it's a lack of opportunity, right? Uh, SoftBank's not going to write 50, $400 million checks in the next year, right? Yeah. They're, they're probably not going to write all that many checks at all for at least a year or two. Mm -hmm. So, so you, you know, as with all things, tweets, uh, they go out now, no one will care in, in a year or two. Uh, so there's a little bit more freedom than you did had before. Unless you're going to host an award show and then delete that shit. Right. Um, <laughs> exactly. Um, so let's talk about Grubhub for a minute. Now, Grubhub isn't normally a company inside of our uh, our domain. This show tries to focus on startups uh, from the early to the late stage and then kind of the IPO cycle, and that's it. Grubhub has, has been public for a while. Um, why do we care what's going on? Well, they had a really terrible Q3 going back in time, and they kind of subtweeted DoorDash and some other companies in the space. And then time passed, and their stock went down. And then the stock went back up because the rumor on the street, the reports are that they are exploring strategic options, which means they're willing to sell. And people like that because it tends to mean a premium. So now they're back to the $55 per share range. Okay. Now, this matters because there's a bunch of VC bets in the on-demand space. We got DoorDash. Uh, Uber Eats is now public, but you know what I mean. Uh, Postmates is somewhere stuck between an IPO and an exit. And there's, there's a lot of money bouncing around this space. And if Grubhub can sell, it'll set a price for what these companies are worth uh, when they're profitable, as Grubhub tends to be. And also, it could lead to consolidation, which could limit uh, competitive pressures, which could kind of let everyone have a bit more margin, provided that the market will allow that. So I just wanted to kind of like name check this really quick and let everyone like know that it's something to keep an eye on if you're tracking the on-demand market in general. If Grubhub fails to find a buyer at a price that it likes, its stock will probably go back down, and that will hurt all players in the space. Um, but I don't have a, an acquirer in mind. You know, I don't know who might, like, it's not going to be Amazon, right? I mean, so then who the hell is going to buy Grubhub? It's not Uber. So I don't know who does, but it's going to be curious to see if anyone takes a nibble or a bite. And then if um, some investors who are pushing from behind the scenes, I think Caledonia might be doing that, um, are, are satiated 
uh, with their demands. Danny, anything you want to add to that? I tried to do kind of a summary. No, I think that's great. I, I think, you know, here's a, here's a stock that's lost two thirds of its value over the last 18 months, right? So it, it peaked about July, August last year um, at 146 or so um, dollars a share. It's down to what, 56 now. So it, it's lost an enormous amount of value. And most of that, from what I can tell, is, is really the multiple. I mean, it just has had huge multiple compression, right? So I don't think its revenues, as far as I know, have like cratered in the last year, year and a half. It's just expectations. So right now, um, according to Yahoo Finance, the forward P ratio for the company is 253. Um, and that's sort of the problem with the on-demand space is it's always about this potential, right? It's this yeah. growth, it's this future, and it, it's similar in Uber's case as well. We're seeing the same thing where, you know, profitability was next year, now it's two years, now it's three years. Every year we go forward, it's another extra year ahead. Uh, and I think we're at, what, 2023 was the last number we heard? Yes, but... At least they have a forward PE ratio. They Uber have a forward. <laughs> exactly. Right. It, it helps to have at least something at the bottom line yes, uh, to keep you, the, the propeller of the company forward. Um, and so that's the question. I think I, I think the, the challenge, I, I think you're going to see consolidation. Um, the nice thing, um, the, the market cap of the company is $5 billion right now um, on the public markets. Um, that's actually a price that a lot of people can kind of swallow. Um, Google can swallow that. Amazon can swallow that. Like yeah. a bunch of people can swallow that. Um, and and so the question is, is like, is the brand name, the marketing channel work, um, the installed customer base, um, does that all make sense? Or um, is it like, hey, you know, we're just going to cannibalize it. We can buy those customers for less money on a marketing channel. Um, Consolidation is going to help us. So I don't, I don't see them merging, but we'll, we'll know probably pretty soon because they are going through these strategic options. What about, and I just came up with this, and it may be very, very dumb, and you can laugh at me if it's not good, because it's not, not something that I wrote down. What about Yelp plus Grubhub as one public company? I mean, uh, to me, that seems like the obvious choice. My, my guess oh, is, okay. is that they actually, they actually had that conversation, and that's why they're talking about strategic options, is actually to push on that harder, right? You, uh, you announce, oh, we're considering alternatives, because you have actually <laughs> someone in mind, and you're trying to push them, and they're like, no, we don't like the price or whatever. Uh, and so, you know, again, at $5 billion, you can even imagine a take-private kind of opportunity. Maybe someone comes in and says, hey, we're going to go directly compete, and someone like Yelp goes, actually, we'll pay more to avoid having someone dump another $5 billion into this market of primary capital for, for Grubhub, right? So, yeah. so to me, anytime you're announcing this, sometimes when you do the S1 for enterprise companies, it's the same thing. You're just putting the numbers out there, so it starts a feeding friend. Um, you're, dual, you're dual tracking, as it's called. That's right. Except in those cases, you actually have real revenues, oftentimes like a really, really nice model. It's a huge growth story, and a lot of you know big enterprise companies want that. Grubhub is a much tougher story, right? It just it, it, it exists. Doesn't make a huge amount of money. It is growing. It doesn't. It's not growing really fast. The multiples are compressing. It's not a. It's not a happy, happy story. No, no. And if you want to go back in time and look at two examples of what Danny's talking about on the enterprise side, AppDynamics and Qualtrics are two companies that almost got public and they looked fantastic. Like they're just some of the strongest companies that would have gone public in their cycles. And instead they were snapped up for bajillions of dollars by large companies who were like, oh, that's gorgeous. We'll take that because we'll take the revenue growth and the limited uh, losses. So it was just kind of a hot situation for both. Cool. Uh, oh gosh, this is just a sad episode. We just have more bad news to go over. Um, but People it's not food. Oh, there will be drinks, but th this one's not about food for once. It's true. This one's about China. And uh, for, for anyone who's listened to the show for a long time, there was this period of time on equity when like every bit of news was about China, like taking over everything. Um, China raised the most rounds. They had the most unicorns. They were building the most new companies. Da, 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 da. And, and that's all gone away if you've been listening. And it's not because we decided to ignore China. It's because they're undergoing an enormous... 
uh, I, I'm okay, fine, cratering of their venture capital dollar volume or equivalent of dollar volume. Um, I wrote about this, I think last October or November, about how their share of super giant rounds, which are 100 million or larger, had just collapsed over a multi quarter basis. And um, the Financial Times, a paper that I read almost every morning in print, um, had a great story that says China tech startups go bust in 2019 capital winter. Uh, and that's kind of a good summary. There's been an enormous amount of startup deaths over there. For example, um, a data provider noted that there were 336 startups in the country that were forced to cease operations over the course of quote last year. And here's the kicker. They had raised two and a half billion dollars between them. So an enormous amount of money had gone into these hundreds of companies that died and then they died anyways. And I have one anecdote and then I want to hear from you because you've been in Asia way more than I have. Um, there was a startup called Tao Gigi, for lack of a better shot there. And uh, they're going into bankruptcy. But what's crazy is they had over 130 million people that used their service and they had raised $42 million. But somehow they were $230 million in debt to their suppliers. So like sometimes I think we conflate scale with success. And as we can see from that, it's not the case. But these are not just small deaths of local YC graduates. These are often big companies. So with that, Danny, I want your impressions on those. No, I, I think, you know, two years ago, we were talking about nothing but China, um, you know, hundreds of unicorns. And I, I think, you know, we're going to actually talk about the bubble a little bit in Silicon Valley next. But I think I think the bubble absolutely did pop in China. Everything was overvalued. Many of these companies were mirages, um, marketing machines that were subsidizing, you know, seven to one, 10 to one dollars or UN, if you will, um, into into these companies. And so if you, you give people free 10 bucks uh, to make $1 in revenue, well, I mean, you can get growth unbelievably fast. You're just literally throwing money around. But what's happening now is um, people are realizing that the, uh, many of these business models have nothing behind them. They're, mm. they're literally uh, paper tigers, to maybe borrow a phrase. So, so I think what we're going to see here is, is something really challenging, um, both because the Chinese government really wants the startup sector to succeed, is putting a huge amount of money in, um, just as the trade war sort of, you know, kind of intensifying, non-intensifying. Um, and so all that comes together, and it's, it's not going to be a pleasant place for, for startups. That said, there is one caffeinated version to continue our food and drink uh, uh, theme today, which is Luckin, which we've talked on the show. Hell, I've talked about it. Uh, sorry, heck, I've talked about it seven times on this show, uh, at least. But uh, Luckin Coffee is our favorite uh, coffee brand in the world. It's probably the worst coffee. I've never had it. But um, Luckin Coffee was like the fastest growing coffee chain probably in, in world history. And so yes. um, last year, it actually surpassed Starbucks as the largest coffee chain, mostly through vending machines and sort of um, in, China. in China. Exclusively in China. No, as far as I know, international operations. And so um, they announced earlier this week that they're going to launch uh, even more uh, vending machines all across the country and are also going to do raise another 800 million bucks. Yesterday or, or two days ago um, when the show is actually launched, uh, the stock was up 12% on the public markets. And so there is like... It's interesting because we used to joke about this because it was so ridiculous. It was like every month it like quadrupled in size. But we're actually, even with the compression of every other startup in China and Beijing, um, somehow Luckin is still doing well. So maybe there's something lucky about Luckin. I mean, one, that was a beautiful turn of phrase. Two, I just grabbed some numbers. I think it went public at $17 a share in the U.S., right? Have you looked up its stock price? Have you seen this before? I have not. All right. Now, I want you to guess how many dollars per share is Luckin worth as of the end of trading today. I'm going to say 35 Wow, you're actually low. It's forty four thirty seven. There you go. According at the end of trading on Thursday. So two, two and, and a half. Yeah. The reason why that matters is it shows that not every company that blitz scales dies. Some of them pull it off, and uh, it just seems to be kind of the anomaly that it works. I think it's what we've learned in the last eighteen months. 
That's right. And yeah. look, look uh, part of the magic here is, again, it's a vending machine. So the, the cost structure, unlike Zoomy or, or Zoom Pizza, where the, the van, I, I, I like to call it Zoomé because I always felt it was oh. like French. It was a little bit more sophisticated pizza than like Domino's or something like that. So it's Zoomé. Um, but, but, you know, Zoom's vans were, were extraordinarily expensive. I mean, robotic pizza vans driving around self-driving is totally different than a vending machine that pours out coffee from a button. So, so I think the cost structure makes a lot more sense here. Um, and obviously it's continuing to grow. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, so I now really want to try Luckin' Coffee. And so what they should do is they should open up their very first ever international branch right here in Providence. And uh, I'll be the first customer. But I, people who don't know this should realize that most of their stores are delivery only. And they're not That's places right. where you can go. So they're not like Starbucks. So we say it's taking over Starbucks in terms of locations. But mostly it's around delivery and vending machines, which have a lower... That's right. Um, cost structure to some degree. I mean, the economics somehow work out. It's, it's amazing. Well, my, my understanding is it's heavily focused on office workers and it's heavily focused on group purchases. And so it's not like a cup of coffee is being delivered um, no. or, or like in the Bay Area, you, you can now use Jupiter and you can have people deliver milk right into your fridge exactly on the shelf that you want it by pinpointing on the picture exactly where in the fridge you would like your milk to be placed. Um, in this context, in some cases, it might be like 50 cups of coffee are delivered to the same office in one go. Um, it, it's just a totally different scale. All right. Before we go on to the Sam Altman uh, bet that Danielle uh, Morrill covered, um, I just want to point out that if you're an adult, uh, buy your own damn milk. Try it. It's fun. You go to the store, you can pick which one you want. You don't have to worry about someone bringing you the wrong one. Do they have complete... multiple milks in Providence? Shut up. Like, like soy, oat, almond, or macadamia? There's two Whole Foods in Providence, sir. Two. I have you know. Anyways, enough of that rudeness. Go to your own grocery shopping and let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about Sam Altman. Now, um, Sam doesn't come up as much as he used to. He's no longer in charge of YC in the same capacity that he was. Uh, we actually interviewed um, the current head of YC, Michael Seibel. There you go. But back in 2015, he made a bet, uh, a three-part bet, Danny. And the, the wager was against there being a bubble, in a sense. He said that the companies that were then accreting a lot of value. We're going to keep doing that. And what's kind of fun is two of his three bets worked out. So I'll tell you what, I'll take one and then you take two and we'll split three. Fair enough? Sounds good. All right. So proposition one, I'm just going to read this for everybody. So this is my read voice. On January 1st, 2020, the top six U.S. companies, Uber, Palantir, Airbnb, Dropbox, Pinterest, and SpaceX, will be worth at least $200 billion in aggregate from just $100 billion in 2015. Now, turns out not true. They're worth between 30 and 40 billion less, depending on how you do the math. But they did add 70% of their value or 70% more value over the last uh, five years, give or take. So my read of this is that um, Dropbox, well, let's just go through the list. Uber grew and then struggled, yep. uh, as we all know, in the last two years. Palantir can't go public because no one knows if it's a service business or a software company. Airbnb won't go public because it doesn't want to because it's being a brat. And now it's to direct list because it's too hard to price like every other company in the history of IPOs. Uh, Dropbox is only worth $7.5 billion, turns out. Pinterest has done well and not well as a public company. And SpaceX is kicking ass. Um, but they're worth a lot of money. I mean, these are big companies that have material revenues, serious market uh, growth and so forth. So a miss there. Uh, and let's go into Proposition 2. Well, I was going to say, I, I think on the first one here, I mean, there's a little bit of a power law, right? What's interesting here is I, I think there was an expectation that one of these six was going to be, you know, a 200, 300, 400 billion dollar company like Facebook, Google, Apple, Microsoft, the FANG companies. And um, ironically, none of them did. I mean, Uber Uber was probably the closest at one point when it was hitting its peak at 100 um, at one point. But I, I think we now know that that's really not 
coming together. And, and clearly the others um, are definitely not on that course uh, at all. So there's really no kind of power law distribution there. They're all sort of, uh, Uber's the kind of big winner and followed by Palantir, but uh, they didn't really add up in the same way that we might have expected. Um, but let's go to Proposition 2. Um, so Proposition 2 is my reading voice, and I have to be careful using the word proposition in California because that's a, that's a bad <laughs> word these days in San Francisco politics. Um, but Proposition 2 says, on January 1st, 2020, Stripe, Zenefits, Instacart, Mixpanel, Teespring, Optimizely, Coinbase, Docker, and Weebly, wow, that's a lot, will be worth at least $27 billion in aggregate from just under $9 billion in 2015. And that ended up being true. Um, actually, unlike uh, in Proposition 1, in Proposition 2, we do have a sort of a power law because Stripe itself is worth $35 billion, which is more than the Proposition's $27 billion estimate. Um, and obviously, Zenefits, well, Zenefits didn't do all that well, but Instacart's out there, Teespring, Optimizely, Coinbase is still a huge company. Um, Docker kind of had its own issues. Um, it's actually kind of funny how none of the others <laughs> come to mind yeah. as like really strong. As I'm going through this, I'm like, actually, reverse course, that was a bad idea. Uh, but Stripe itself, boom, th you know, $35 billion, and it looks like it's on course to continue to do well. Uh, and so, so Sam Altman got that one right. Okay, so let's talk about these, though, because Stripe, uh, to the best of our knowledge, has put together a very large business does done quite well to raise a bunch of money. People in the investing world love it. I don't have any information that I can cite to the contrary, so I guess I'll give that a pass. Zenefits, we all know what happened there. Um, whoops. Instacart um, has gone through some pricing issues, some tipping issues, some labor issues. Um, I'm kind of actually old friends with one of the co-founders, ironically. Uh, I, don't, I haven't talked to him in ages. I don't know how they're doing, but they're worth several billion. Mixpanel was huge and then slowed down. Teespring imploded. Optimizely, I don't know. Coinbase is, has done tremendously well. They're the, they're the blue chip blockchain crypto company in the mm -hmm. US, if not the, the world, aside from Bitmain. And their leadership is super sober. And I, I only had nice things to say about them and what they've done through the crypto winter, honestly, which I know is for me a little positive. But uh, Docker struggled. And Weebly, I think, is doing good, but I, I haven't heard recently. So it's, I, it's, I haven't it's heard more anything about Weebly in years. <laughs> yeah, it's more of a mixed bag than, than I think. But your power law comes in and, and it works out. So take us through Prop 3, if you will, Mr. San Francisco uh, voting. Yes. So in Proposition 3 from Sam Altman, the current YC winter 2015 batch, that's one of these predictions were made five years ago, um, will currently worth something that rounds down to zero, will be worth at least $3 billion on January 1st, 2020. And according to Danielle Morel's um, estimate, that is true. GitLab itself is worth $2.75 billion private valuation. Um, Razorpay is worth $450 million. Atomwise is worth $150 million. And Chariot was required for $65 million. And that all adds up to, to more than $3 billion. And so um, even though a lot of that is not realized, obviously, um, it seems that at least on the private markets, um, that, that five years out, uh, that YC voucher is worth several billion bucks. Okay, so quickly, I realized we hadn't introduced Danielle. Danielle is the uh, former CEO of Mattermark. She is now building something actually over at GitLab, uh, interestingly enough. And she's actually my former boss and is a person to whom I have a great personal debt. So shout out to her because she's uh, fantastic and is just a really cool human. Um, a caveat, though, about GitLab and the valuation that you just cited because we happen to know how large it is, which lets us kind of put that into perspective. So I talked to the CEO of GitLab weeks ago, three, four, whatever it was, and um, they said they were going to hit the 100 million ARR threshold in January of 2020, which is now. So presuming that everything went well, because they were super close to it when they told me in December they were going to hit it in January, you can kind of forecast a month out. Um, they're worth, you know, 28x ARR, which is a lot. 
So sure, yes, currently these companies are valued at more than three billion, but there is a lot of optimism in those numbers. And GitLab has a lot of growing to do to grow into a 2.75 uh, pre or post money valuation. So two out of the three for Mr. Altman, um, and but, not the way I think we would have guessed this would have gone out. I would have bet way more on Uber being successful than Stripe. But, you know, again, proves why I'm not And I think investor. that's the question with a lot of these power laws, right? It's, it's so sensitive to that one company. I mean, what's, what's interesting about Proposition 3 is, is GitLab is the return right now on that. Uh, that, that batch probably had a couple dozen companies. I don't think it was expanded to YC scale where it's 200 now, but it, it was at least a couple dozen companies back then. And uh, one of those companies represents 90% of the value, at least according to this estimate. And so, you know, from my perspective, it's like it, it's a lot riding on GitLab to actually deliver on the winter 2015 batch for YC. Um, and that's just a reminder of how sensitive a lot of these returns are. Uber, if it was 100 billion, we would actually have hit Proposition 1, uh, which it was worth two years ago. Uh, and that's how fast these things can change. One last little caveat, though, on GitLab, I just remembered something. Um, they have a, a planned IPO, and this is off my top of my head, I think it's like November of this year. So, like, we should be able to see GitLab become a realized value point, which is actually to Sam's credit, because if it holds up that valuation by then at, you know, 140, 150 million era, whatever it'll be at that point, it might pull it off. You know, it's still rich multiple, but if the market will take it, it will. So anyways, um, a fun bet to keep in mind that uh, five years is a long time, but two out of three from that distance, not bad. Certainly better than equity is done over a short time frame. <laughs> this show is not going to have predictions. Kay leaves for one week and you already are, never mind. It, look, Look, we all know that we're good at making lame jokes. We are not good at making predictions. Um, one tiny thing, and then we got to go. Um, had you heard of Sysense until recently? Dan? I have not. Okay, so Sysense works in the, the BI space. Uh, they bought Periscope last year. They were part of this $100 million series that I've been writing, $100 million ARR series. Um, they raised $100 million today, uh, or announced it today, and now they're a unicorn. I just want to throw that out because just, I just talked to the CEO like, like an hour ago. That is all the time we have for today, Danny. Where can people find you on the internet? Uh, they can find me on Twitter at, at Danny Crichton. Crichton is C-R-I-C-H-T-O-N. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at, at Alex. You can email us at equitypod at techcrunch.com. Our hashtag is equitypod. The best way to keep the show going if you want to help out is to leave us a review. Chris will read it if it's nice. Today's episode was produced, recorded, and edited by Christopher Gates. A big thanks to Henry Pickavet, our executive producer, and Yashad Kulkarni, TC's executive producer of video. Equity is back Monday morning in your feed. We'll see you all then. Goodbye. Goodbye.